He was a public official who discovered corruption in his own department. He was stabbed in the heart in front of the building where he worked. Michael Frankie's killers were never brought to justice, and you'll find out why. This season of Murder in Oregon. Listen to Murder in Oregon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're like me, you probably listen to or perhaps were obsessed with the Missing Richard Simmons podcast. The host and creator, Dan Taberski, spent a few years trying to find out why Richard Simmons abruptly cut himself off from his adoring fans and so many good friends he made along the way. So over the course of this series, I'm looking for Richard. I'm reaching out in any way I can and exploring every theory. The goal isn't to drag him back. It's to find out why someone like him would ditch the world. This is Missing Richard Simmons. Dan visited Richard's brother in New Orleans and pretty much talked to everyone who knew Richard at some point in their lives. Richard Simmons hasn't been seen in public for over three years. I was particularly interested in this podcast because I had interviewed Richard several times in the past, and I too was worried about him. And I have to be honest, listening to this made me fall in love with Richard Simmons all over again. And I'm not the only one. This podcast has been a huge hit. It was the number one most downloaded podcast on iTunes. But now that the show is over, all six episodes, there are still a lot of questions. I guess the primary one is, why did Richard become a recluse? But there are also people who are questioning Dan's decision to make this podcast and the ethics of doing so. In fact, the New York Times even called it, quote unquote, morally suspect. So I sat down with Dan to talk about why he wanted to do this, what his experience was like, and his reaction to all the criticism. Dan Taberski, so nice to see you, Dan. Nice to see you. So how are you feeling now that everything is done? I I can't imagine the wild ride you've been on. It was a wild ride. And it was, um, it still is, I guess, a little bit. Um, I'm, I am super pleased that it's done just because until it's done, you don't know how it's going to turn out quality-wise. And I'm super happy with how it turned out. Um, but it was a lot. It was a lot of, it started out just like we watched it creep up the iTunes chart and then people, your phone starts ringing and then it is an avalanche. Uh, and it, it it struck a chord, which is so lovely. I'm I'm super excited about that. So it was a little overwhelming. Yeah. And of course, it's been controversial. There's been a lot of criticism of the podcast, and we'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk about this as a medium, if you will. You're a documentary filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You did a film called These Cocksucking Tears. And I wanted to say that because I thought people would enjoy hearing me say the title of your film. I wanted you to say it. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> and you also obviously worked in television, yeah. a producer at The Daily Show. So what made you decide to do a podcast instead of a TV show? It was an unusual story, and I was sort of following it as it was happening, 
And I was doing it as a documentary. I started shooting it as a documentary. I was shooting video, and I actually started on my iPhone. Uh, I was literally, like, I had the whole rig, and, like, yeah, I, I was doing it all myself. And I think part of that is just, like, it needs to reach critical mass. Like, you just got to start. Do you think it would have been successful as a film, as a documentary? I'm really glad it wasn't a documentary because what happens with the documentary is that you finish it, and then there's, like, a year till it comes out. I also think it would have, I think, oddly, a pot, uh, just the audio – just having audio only is more intimate, even though you're missing a sense. But I actually think having the visuals as well might have made it feel a little more invasive and not in a good way. Like it's just, and a lot of people aren't comfortable with their bodies that I'm talking to. And, you know, it just adds another element of, do I really want to pour my heart out to you? And and were you influenced by any other podcasts? For example, were you a big fan of Serial? Is that one of the things that made you gravitate toward this? Um, I was influenced by Serial in just that I really liked it. Um, I will say I don't have a particular love of, like, mystery. Like, I don't love true crime. Um, but that was a big part of this, not true crime, yeah. but the mystery element. Yeah. And, and part of, but also part of that was me figuring out how to do that part. And sometimes in the podcast with my producer, Henry, like, I don't know if it comes through in the podcast, but sometimes, you know, and especially the people at Pineapple Street Media, they were pushing me to do things due diligence. You have to do the basics. You have to reach out this way and that way. And those are the things that made me uncomfortable, but it, it still needed to be done. Like the sort of mystery solving parts were not my favorite part. The, the favorite parts were talking about Richard and the impact he had. What kinds of things did they make you do that made you uncomfortable? <laughs> well, Katie. <laughs> I mean, you opened that door, Dan. No, uh, not un- anything. I'm uncomfortable to, uh, you know, this sounds absurd, but sometimes I'm just uncomfortable to talk to people. And so things like, you know, just going and knocking on Richard's door. Like, that was something I needed to do. I needed to reach out to Richard and just do the basics. Like, if he answered the door and he's like, hey, Dan, come on in. Like, there goes the podcast. But I needed to know those things. Let's peek behind the curtains. Tell us how much traveling you did, the reporting that you did before the episode started to air, how this was done in real time. Can you just tell us a little bit about your process? You're like, I'm interviewing Martin Scorsese somehow. <laughs> I appreciate the comparison. <laughs> well, I'm don't glad get carried you feel away. I'm, I'm totally you. kidding. Uh, but, oh, great. You just <laughs> no. went the other way. Well, you went no, the wrong no, way. No, 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 no. <laughs> I didn't mean that, but I just, you know, I don't I want you, you to get too big for your britches, as is, my mom would say. It will not happen. My britches are just fine. <laughs> uh, uh, the process was, um, it was a long one. I mean, I had originally met Richard in 2012, and I wanted to do a documentary on him from the beginning. Uh, And so that was our process of getting to know each other was, you know, we were getting to know each other, but there was also, you know, there was another level of like, do I trust you to tell my story? So that started in 2012. He disappeared in 2013. And then about a year later, I kind of realized that everybody was sort of wondering what is going on. And there were no easy answers. And a lot of people were really worried, um, sincerely worried. Um, What did he say when you approached him about a documentary? uh, He said, no, wink. (laughs) <laughs> no wink. He said he said no. And then but he said it with a smile and we kept talking and I that was the first day I took his class and I said, "All right, I'll just keep coming to class." And so I did Did you for bring a, it up again? Uh not for a while. Um and then maybe 6 months later I kind of raised it again and then he What did he say? He said uh I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was like a slow process of he sort of invited me to come to behind the scenes of one of the tapings of his videos. Um and then he sort of invited me to lunch where we could talk about it. Just that, without, like, the class or anything else distracting us. Um, So you felt like you were making some progress in achieving your goal of 
producing a documentary. Sure. Yeah, 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 for sure. And then poof. No, uh, it, we, we actually started doing uh, negotiating a deal. Um, about which gets complicated about life rights and stuff like that and how is this going to work. Um, and then sort of in early fall of 2013, um, he I moved back to New York uh, and he put it on hold and then a couple months later he had disappeared. But we were still in touch and still talking. He just wasn't quite ready. Um, but then he he disappeared quite literally. But you really thought it was all systems go that the two of you were going to make a documentary together. I thought no, I thought we had hit a we had hit a pause button, which is totally fine. But I but still, I mean before the pause, yeah, oh yeah, 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 we were for sure. Like it was a we were doing it. Like he told people in the class, and like he, he said it out loud, and we talked. Yeah, for sure, it was happening. You also traveled extensively. Went to New Orleans mm-hmm. and showed up outside his brother's house. Yeah, there you as you mentioned, went to Richard's house in L.A. How much traveling did you have to do for this? I would say, I mean, I went to, we went to New Orleans and we went to Mississippi and then I went to L.A. about five or six times. I mean, I was out there, I would say, for four weeks altogether for this, which, gosh, I guess that's a lot. You set boundaries for yourself, Dan. You, did you, going into this, say, I won't do A, B, and C, or did those boundaries evolve as the project went on? Uh, the boundaries definitely did not evolve. Um, I would say, I mean, I don't consider myself a journalist. I consider myself a documentarian, which are very similar rules, but documentarians, it's a little more artful. You're trying, you're, you're allowed to be a little looser, not with the facts, but with how you're expressing things. Um, but also the easier rule was just like, I consider him a friend of mine. And what would you do to a friend of yours? Like that became not pretending – like I wasn't out to get this guy. I wasn't out to upset him. I, I wasn't out to expose anything. So just saying like, you know what? Like I'm not doing that. He's – like I consider him my friend. He wouldn't want that. Like that was kind of an easy line. So how did you figure out which lines you wouldn't cross? Whichever ones made me nauseous. It's a it's – a, <laughs> only, I'm only half kidding. Like if I really just don't feel right, I'm just like, I don't want to do that. Like – I have to decide if it's um, if it's just nerves or if it's really like, no, there's something wrong with that. Like, in the past three years, I've been outside of Richard's house maybe a total of 10 minutes. Like, you know what I mean? Like, a lot of the things that people think, oh, you crossed boundaries. Like, in fact, people just think we crossed boundaries because we're showing them what we were doing. Like, we were quite honest. Like, I'm going to go knock on his door now because that's basic. You got to do it if you're looking for somebody. Whereas another journalist or a television crew, like, they'll be camped out for days. And like, but you don't see that part. So for some reason, it feels less intrusive. But in fact, like, I I hardly, I didn't make any contact with him. I talked to his manager a couple of times. Like, it was just on the peripheries. If you had to do it over again, would you do anything differently? Um, no, I'm not saying I didn't make mistakes. I think I did make mistakes, although most of the mistakes people people probably didn't pick up on. Like if um, I, I'm really proud of it, um, I'm really proud of it. You can uh, be proud of it, but also maybe think regret a few things in it. Um, I wish I was more prepared to understand that if people started listening, that that would change it, that that would change the that would change what was happening. Like the first, I think what happened is that 
people were really on board and they were like, oh my gosh, Richard Simmons is amazing. And I don't think it's exaggerating to say that I did remind people that Richard Simmons is amazing. And I, I do think he has really become one dimensional in the past 10, 20 years. And that part of the fun of this was just saying, you don't understand, like he's this businessman and he's helping all these people and you just, all these dimensions. Part of it was really like A&E biography in a way. Yeah. But once people realized that it wasn't just the guy that Letterman was making fun of in short shorts, then people were like, Richard's amazing. And they're like, wait a minute, leave Richard alone. <laughs> so I kind of put myself into a trap. Again, that we weren't doing anything that was actually – there was nothing intrusive about what we were doing. But I think the more people got to know Richard, the more they felt like they knew him. That got into your head, though. But the fact that you were doing this in real time, mm. sort of some of the backlash against the show, how did it influence sort of the, the latter episodes? The stress level went up, like way up. <laughs> like intensely up for me, but that, I do that to myself, um, as, as I think, you know, a lot of directors or producers or anybody would do. Describe how that felt when people started saying, hey, wait a minute. Um, it's, not, it's not just that. Hey, wait a minute is fine because they weren't – nobody out there has asked anything that we haven't been asking ourselves for the past three years. And I think that's what – that, like, we went eyes wide open. Like, I have never worked on a project for this long so considerately – um, and I don't mean that as a compliment. I just mean like the sheer time and due diligence we did to make sure that we were doing things a way that we thought were, were, was right. Um, so it's more about the criticism, a little bit of criticism, plus people really waiting for the next episode, plus people who know Richard wanting to know what's going on, plus knowing that Richard's out there and wondering what he's thinking, plus just sheer time, like you start to run out of time. Um, so all that sort of coalesces into nothing new, nothing that I'm sure you or a million other people haven't experienced times 10. But, you know, for me, <laughs> this time it was me. So it's serious. And it was a new phenomenon for you. Yeah, I had never had, you know, I had a, I had a kid show like uh, five years ago on Cartoon Network. That was a really big hit, but it was a big hit with kids. And so like nobody knew what I was doing. Like if a 12 year old came up to me, I was the rock star. But it was really under the radar with adults, um, and there was something really um, pressureless about that. Um, but this was the first time where I did something, you know, that I was at the center of that um, that became really um, intense like that, and so quickly and so surprisingly. I want to play a clip from the podcast. Here is what you told your producer Henry at the start of the project. If he said to you, like, "Why are you doing this?" What would you say? In my perfect world of worlds, this gesture would be the entire world and all the people around him telling Richard Simmons that he should love himself and to the point where he would believe it. I know that's impossible, but it'd be great. Me go ahead. Oh, sorry. I thought there was more. Never mind. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, I, didn't, I just – oh, my God. I just put my finger up to Katie Kirk. Like, Katie, hold on a second. <laughs> that's I'm okay. about to say something great. Many people have said that the grand gesture, this podcast and your search for Richard Simmons Dan, wasn't all that grand, that at best it was sweet, but at worst intrusive and perhaps even self-serving. Let me read to you what a critic in the New York Times said. Can I just um, tell you I've never read this? Oh, really? No. You, people told me about it. No, please read it. But people told me about it. But anyway, go ahead. I just have one line from this article. The writer said it was morally suspect and added, is this what friends do, turn their loved one's personal crisis into a fun mystery investigation and record it for a hit podcast? 
the hit podcast part. I love that. I love that it's assumed that I just knew this was going to be a hit. <laughs> like for me, I for me, it feels like I tricked people into giving me money to make this project about somebody that I think is really great, and I it never. It, of course, I wanted it to be a big thing, but I, I didn't realize that it would be. The flip side of that is I really do think that there's a real question of, like, when are you supposed to start asking these questions about people that you think are great and that are important and you think might be in trouble? I mean, are we supposed to wait, like, this might sound grim, uh, you know, are we supposed to wait till you know, in 20 years, like, Richard Simmons is dead, and then, you know, and then he lived the last 20 years of his life in solitude, and there's all these questions about it, and then, you know, people just line up like planes landing into LAX, trying to get on MSNBC to talk about it, um, and, for some, and for some reason, that would be the sad thing to do for me. But with all due respect, is that really your job? I mean, who made you the guy who should be responsible for tracking down Richard Simmons when maybe he just wants to be left alone? Uh, I would think that, you know, I think anybody who sort of endeavors in a project like this, there's some sort of you have to decide that this is a story worth telling. Um, You know, I also think that um, there were real questions, uh, and because I knew him, um, it made me feel like I was in a position to ask these questions, whereas other people maybe couldn't. Um, I also. But do you think you know when you say that people might think, well, he was really taking advantage of this friendship? Uh, they might. That that would be a shame. Um, but I, I I certainly hope they wouldn't. I mean, I, I do think it's worth reminding people and myself that there were real questions up to six weeks ago about what was going on with Richard Simmons. And that's not a joke. That's not hyperbole. That's not, you know, making something out of nothing. That's me knowing many, many people, almost anybody I knew who knew Richard Simmons from that class and knew him for years thought that something was wrong. And everybody, every one of those people, including me, recognized that what they felt and what they knew about Richard and what his management and his publicist were saying did not match up. They were saying, he just retired. He's fine. That's not what happened. And so it, it created this like – there was just this, this gap between what the people who were around him were saying versus what the people who knew him were feeling. And I think in, in, in large part, we're correct. Add on top of that, one of, the, one of the closest people to Richard before he disappeared, who I got to know through Richard, who Richard told me to trust – was telling me that something's going on here, that this is not good, that this is scary, and here are the reasons. So it wasn't, this isn't, there's a part of it where we treat it really light and have fun with it, just like Richard will cry one second and laugh the next. Like, I love that sort of thing. But there was another part of this where it, it, people were concerned and it, it bared investigating. How did you reach out to some of the other people who you feature in the podcast? The woman who Richard drove to exercise class, uh, who is how old again? She's 95. She just had her 95th birthday. My name is Jerry, Jerry Sinclair. All her friends call her Gigi. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and she was so sweet and, and really darling in this podcast. Not many people have a 40-year relationship with their... Exercise instructor. Well, he's easy to love, and I do. I did become like a second mother. How did you convince her? I mean, was she reticent? 
No, she wasn't reticent. The people around her were reticent. Um, and I think the fact that I had been taking the class and that I, I was a familiar face to a lot of these people um, and that I wasn't an outsider coming in trying to do a story on Richard Simmons, I was kind of coming from within and saying, hey, what's going on, guys? And sort of hearing what everybody was saying, really not understanding what was happening. Um, and I think there was a familiarity that um, – that allowed me to talk to people. It just – it made them open up a little bit more. But it was still not an easy road to hoe. Like people are still really protective of Richard and people are afraid to – you know, they don't want to say something that's going to be misconstrued. And so – Did anyone call you after you interviewed them and say, I don't really feel comfortable. Do you mind not including that? No. Were you hoping that this would end – with Richard doing an interview with you and telling you where he'd been, what he'd been doing, and what had happened? Um, in the b best of all possible worlds? Yeah, in the best of all possible worlds, um, a big part of what I was hoping for was that he would feel that, that he would, I, that he would feel that. A lot of people think and felt that he was isolated and alone in a way that wasn't healthy for him or for others and that he would tell the same to them when he was there. Like it's it's a big part of obesity is like – and we talk about it on the podcast is, is you isolate yourself um, and it's unhealthy and you have to find people you trust. And I, you know, misguided – He supposedly is, is at his fighting weight. Detective Becker tells me that. Yeah, which is great. It's amazing. Um but what I was hoping was that if if he wasn't in a good way, that he would feel that that love and he would feel that understanding and people respecting the impact he's made on them and that that would have an impact on him, sure. So in a way, you tried to deliver a love letter, not a voyeuristic invasion of privacy. No, I mean, I would try to do a love letter. I also tried to tell a really compelling story. Um, yeah. I also tried to tell the story of, you know, the, the story of Richard Simmons is an incredible one that people – Forgot absolutely. I will say, in terms of voyeurism, I, I don't mean this to sound coy, but there's a ton of stuff that we didn't put in there, like stuff that people that he would never want anybody talking about. Um, and, and so it wasn't about digging up dirt and putting it out there. Like I, I we th that's not what this was at all. Like if if we wanted to do voyeuristic, that would have been super easy. And that's not. I, I hope that's not what we did. Well, it's interesting because some of the things that you anticipated would be included in the sixth episode, yeah, uh, they weren't. Mm -hmm. And you explain at the beginning that uh, if people were wondering what was left out, it 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 uh, included a boombox and a letter, your skills at gift wrapping, and you being way too deep into the story. <laughs> and you say to the listeners, if you ever wonder. What what happened and what we kept out? Ask me, and I'll tell you. So, Dan, why'd you take things out? What were they? <laughs> they were, um, and I do think that's definitely part of the um, challenge of doing something in real time. Like, to, you know, episode five comes out, and you're not quite sure what episode six is going to be yet because it's happening. Like, the phone's ringing, and people are giving you information that you feel like is important. And um, there were two things that we were going to put in there. Um, there was one where um, where I wanted to make sure that Richard was hearing the podcast. 
um, because that was a big part of this. And literally, like, sometimes I think about Richard Simmons like my grandmother. Like, I'm not quite sure if he knows how the internet works type thing. Um, and so it was literally just putting what we had done into a boombox and putting it on his front uh, – on a stoop. I guess if, if you can call a mansion. I don't know if a mansion has a stoop. Um, but, front steps, uh, I front guess, Front steps, right? yeah, the steps. Walkway. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and to uh, and to get his reaction uh, and to, so that we would know that he would had heard it. The other thing that was in there um, was something about uh, two of the ancillary characters, Moro and Teresa. Um, and it basically – gosh, how do I say this without um, without telling you? Because the whole point of not putting it in there was to not tell people. Um, I think Maybe it, tell us your reasoning. Yeah. Perhaps. The reasoning was it was it – was, um, it, it turned out to be my, – my sense is that what we were going to put in there – in retro, after talking to people, because after the podcast came out, a lot more people started talking to us. Um, a lot more people who were close to Richard were giving us their two cents in a really good way. Um, and we kind of realized that the stuff that we thought was important uh, and pertained to Richard, it was less about Richard and it was more about Moro and Teresa. Uh, and so it was drama and it was good tape. Um, but in the end, the story that we really wanted to tell was the story about Richard. And as we got closer to the end, we realized, you know what? That's just not – it's just bringing up stuff that doesn't affect Richard at all. I think it's just about them. I will say that we were overzealous. I think there's lesson learned in terms of being overzealous with a tease yeah. for sure. Don't uh, tease what you can't deliver, Dan. I know. I right? could deliver, but I don't. Under promise and over deliver. I know. For sure. Well, I have to ask you, though. I have to ask you about the boombox. Yeah. What Can about? you tell me? That was it. Oh, what happened? Yeah. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> I know you put it there, but what happened? Okay. So did you hear the tease? Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's what happened. It's going to sound really small. Um but it was kind of incredible. So what happened is we put it down. Um, it, it had four balloons on it, and um, and it was a boombox with the podcast in it. And I put it uh, at his front door or over the fence, um, which is super easy to do because um, it's right there in the street. And then we left. And as we were driving away, we saw Teresa, the housekeeper, come pick it up. So we were like, great. Mission accomplished. He's going to get it. And in, inside was a note saying, we will be back tomorrow at 9 o'clock. If you want to talk to me, I don't know if you're getting any messages. I don't know if it's getting through to, through Teresa. I don't know if it's getting through your manager. If if we'll come back at 9 o'clock tomorrow and we'll wait 10 minutes. Um, if um, if you come out then, then we'll be waiting for you. We could talk. If not, well, this is it. That's it. We're done. Um, and he didn't come out. Um, and a bird shit on me, and, like, it started raining. That was a message. Yeah, totally. Oh, the gods were literally, like, enough to Bursky. Um, all really, like, benign stuff. Like, just, like— So why not include that? Because uh, it wasn't important. It seemed silly compared to what really happened is that ultimately the person that we got closer to Richard than we ever thought we would, which was the manager and who shut me down over and over, and who and he's known Richard for 30 years. Um, and then he decided to— talked to me and gave me a quite an extensive interview and said some things really – I mean he speaks for Richard in, in every way uh, and he said some things that were really surprising and really moving and it became um, a, a more real story and a sadder story um, that made the other stuff feel unimportant. Look, we all, we all know that this is you know, a, a, a very uh, emotional um, – empathetic, sympathetic, compassionate person. 
Uh, I think anybody that has those traits over a long period of time, yeah, I think good buys are tough. Yeah. Most people want, you know, you know, want, want, want that last bow. Not everybody. Are you worried that Richard is upset with you for doing this? And I guess he is, or you've gotten the, the vibe that he is or not? Um, I don't know. I actually I mean, his, haven't heard his, from Richard. His, but no, but through his representatives and his avoidance of, of you, <laughs> you know, he's just not that into you, Dan, apparently. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, it's not hard to avoid somebody when they're not. I mean, he is an isolated person. He, 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 he is in his home, does not speak. He's not, he's, he's isolating himself. So it's not like we weren't throwing rocks at his window. It's just like, Richard, come out. Like that is not anywhere but yeah, near. But obviously, you reached out repeatedly to all his his representatives, and yeah, you know clearly he knew that that's what you ultimately wanted. Look, if anybody had if anybody has a problem with me calling his publicist a couple too many times, like that is the least of our worries here. You know, no, for the but most, I mean, he was clearly avoiding you. I guess is yes, the bottom line. Certainly, is that yes. And are you worried that he is going to be like Dan? Get off my back. Leave me alone. Why are you doing this? Why are you capitalizing on our relationship? I I don't want I want to be alone. I don't want this kind of attention. I'm pissed. It's possible for sure. I don't know. He hasn't told me. I think it's not so much what I did. I think it's the way other people reacted to it. And so the press that follows. So now, you know, like I just saw in People magazine, there's a picture of his housekeeper like taking out the recycling. Like literally people camped out. Are you uh, sorry that you kind of started that? I am sorry for any negatives because I don't. I, I really like him. I think he's really special, and I know he's a really sensitive guy. And but am I? Do I? Am I really proud of it? Yeah. And do I think it's impacted a lot of people? And I think I think to remind people about empathy at a time when studies show that empathy is at an all time low. I'm sure at an all time exactly at an all time low. Like it's a real thing. And so to remind people of the specialness of that, like I'm really proud of that, and I think it's had an impact. Are you convinced that Richard is okay? I'm as convinced as I can be. I mean, I do know that his his manager and I do think his housekeeper, I, I do think they love him very much. And um, and this is, you know, and I think that the stories are aligning now. Like what his what the people around him are saying is matching up to reality now, um, whereas before it wasn't. And it was very scary for a lot of people. You can, You just can't overstate the real concerns and valid concerns that all the people around Richard Simmons had. Especially when someone does such a 180, right? Not only do they do it, it's not like George Clooney decided he was going to go to Lake Como, you know, and take a couple years off. He was the, the most accessible celebrity on the planet. He would wait at his window and run outside multiple times a day and talk to people and tour vans driving by and take pictures of them. He would invite them into his house and give them stuff. And so I'm not saying he, because he was so accessible before that, he, that he doesn't deserve privacy now. But it absolutely means that to switch like that on a day um, is concerning at the very least. Where do you go from here, Dan? Here you've got this podcast that's creating really a huge amount of buzz, Mm. a lot of controversy. It's really prompting Richard to be on the cover of People magazine. I mean, this is probably much bigger than you ever anticipated. Yeah. So what are your plans for the future? Um, I don't know. I literally just <laughs> finished the first. I mean, I have a couple of things that, I, that I'm cooking up, but I mean, hopefully it'll be. Um, 
Can well, you t- tell us what you're cooking up? Uh, give, give it, give us a little yeah, bit sure. of an idea. Not, Why not? Yeah, I'm working. Come on, on, give me a scoop here, Dan. It's not. Oh, it's going to sound really boring compared <laughs> to this one. Uh, I'm working on a documentary idea uh, about the Minnesota State Fair. Uh, and all the different people that coalesced on this thing that started 100, 150 years ago as for, you know, if it were a way for farmers to get together. And now it's literally a crossroads of of different cultures and issues in the state and larger issues and plus, you know, like butter sculptures. I was going to say a big sea of humanity and a lot of funnel cakes. Yeah. So I'm going to come back like I'll need Richard more than ever. A lot of corn dogs. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds interesting. That's a good sign, man. For sure. Dan Taberski, thank you for talking to me. And I think your listeners will be interested in hearing your views on all this because this is a little more unfiltered and it's really coming from your heart. Thank you. Thanks to Dan Taberski, First Look Media and Stitcher for making this possible. I really enjoyed going behind the scenes of this podcast. And a big thank you to my team at Earwolf and Midroll as well. Thanks to Gianna Palmer for producing and to Jared O'Connell, mixing and engineering. Thanks also to our social media maven. We like that because it's alliterative. Allison Bresnick and to Emily Bina for her part in producing the show. Also a big thank you to Chris Bannon and Mark Phillips. Thank you as always for our Ruby theme music. Ryan Goldsmith, Mitch Semmel, and I are executive producers of this podcast. And lastly, if you came here because you're a missing Richard Simmons fan and you liked what you heard, you might like other episodes of our podcast. We hope so. Like the one where Alec Baldwin shared what it's like to perform as President Trump on SNL or when Samantha Bee gave her take on being the only woman in late night. Recently, I got Tony Robbins' explanation of how President Trump's leadership style compares to President Obama's. Interesting, right? So if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to my podcast on iTunes. Just search Katie Couric. Very creative, I know. What's up? I'm Will Fulton from Thrillist with some amazing podcast news. We just launched our very first podcast, Thrillist Best and the Rest. Every week, you can hear me and my amazingly talented colleagues Talk about the best of the best in food, drink, travel, and entertainment. From the scariest movie of all time to the best hangover cure ever, listen to Thrillist Best and the rest on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, you know, basically everywhere and anywhere you can find podcasts.